A note for listeners, this episode contains discussion of child sexual abuse and attempted suicide. Please listen with caution and care. Jason, we talk a lot about false confessions and and we know how and why they happen. Is there a scenario in which you would willfully confess to a crime like a murder? Well, I can envision a scenario in which I would confess to a murder that I didn't commit. And that would be if I became so disoriented, scared, confused, lonely, and just terrified of the people who, you know, we all believe are there to to protect us and to help us and to find the truth. When they turn on you, sometimes... People see it as their only way out of that impossible situation. And you're in that room and you're like, I don't want to die. And maybe this will get sorted out because I know I didn't do it. And he kept saying, well, if you sign this, I'll let you go home. And so I was like, but this is not what happened. So he kept me to the chair and he hit me with a phone book to wake me up. He's like, sign this and we will let you go. I signed the paper and I never left prison. From Lava for Good, this is Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Today, Sylvia Boykin. On May 15, 1992, Sylvia Boykin went to collect a drug debt from a woman named Bernetta Pope. Sylvia showed up at the house in North Philadelphia with two men, Lamont Antoine Blagman and Aaron Major. Bernetta owed Sylvia money, who in turn owed Antoine and Aaron, as well as other men who were higher up in the drug network. But Bernetta was late in paying, so Sylvia brought Antoine and Aaron to prove that she was trying her best to obtain the debt but things went horribly wrong. When they got there, Bernetta and her son Albert refused to pay. Exactly what happened next, we may never know, but gunfire erupted and Bernetta Pope was shot dead. Sylvia was quickly arrested, charged, and convicted of first-degree murder. But Sylvia did not shoot anybody. I went there with no intentions that no one would get killed. I didn't kill anyone. I didn't order for anyone to get killed. I'm Sylvia Boykin. I'm 63, I'll be 64 in two days. And here I sit 31 years later in a prison. Sylvia Boykin was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on May 26, 1958. She's the youngest of six kids. So when I was born, all my sisters were grown and they were having babies. So I grew up with my nieces and nephews. On the surface, Sylvia's life seemed great. She went to magnet schools for kids with high IQs. And when she graduated, she moved to Virginia for college, where she studied data entry and medical administrative assistance. She had a good job at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, Virginia, and was on her way to greatness. But Sylvia wound up on a different path, one of substance abuse and addiction. Somewhere inside of me, I was running. God always had his hand on me, but 
I was running and I was trying to, I was trying to find something to fix the pain because I was hurt like very bad, which is um, a really tough subject for me. Sylvia's inner trauma and suffering started when she was a child and her grandfather sexually assaulted her. He didn't actually, like, have sex with me to penetrate me or anything, but he touched me in my private area. But that was just like the beginning, you know, of things that happened in my life as a child. Then, at 10 years old, she was raped by her 19-year-old brother. I had to go to the hospital and I was a very young girl, and at that time I was um, stitched up, and uh, I was told by my mother not to tell the police who did it because that they would arrest my brother. The assault and rape, plus the fact that her family covered it all up, took a huge toll on Sylvia. After I was raped by my brother, I took my mother's sleeping pills. I tried to kill myself when I was 10. Yeah, I took the whole bottle. Oh my gosh, who found you? My niece, Valerie. She's like two years younger than me. Um, She found me and she went and got my sister. They took me to the hospital. They pumped my stomach and they put me in the children's psych ward. Sylvia's older sister, Teresa, was furious at the situation and intent on making sure Sylvia would be safe going forward. The whole family lived in a three-story duplex. Sylvia lived on the first floor with her mother and brother, while the rest of the family lived upstairs. Teresa lived on the second floor. She took me and wouldn't let me sleep downstairs in my mother's part. She said I couldn't stay down there. She took me. And so I stayed up in her part until... I healed up until I got well. And this isn't even the extent of Sylvia's suffering. Throughout her childhood and adolescence, Sylvia was again molested numerous times by close family friends. So I went through a lot of um, being raped and molested that I used to just go like in the front of the church for altar prayer and I would just stay there and pray and you know I just wonder like why why did these people do this to me while Sylvia's sisters tried to protect her from the sexual abuse Sylvia sought out coping mechanisms my sister she would she started she would give me beer and sometimes she would give me um, she used to drink this liquor called Macnoids and she would give me some So, you know, do you think your need to escape is kind of what led you to drug use? Yes. I always felt like I needed to run away. I needed to numb the pain. So I would always be like the life of the party. Like everybody wanted, liked it to be around me. And sometimes I think I tried to shut my brain off from it. Eventually, when she was 17 years old, 
Sylvia met the man who would become her first husband. She was motivated to move forward, past the trauma, and build a normal life. As a little girl, I used to always dream about just having this beautiful home and children and a husband and um, just being very happy. I used to always draw pictures like that when I was little with the sunshine and the house with a, a fence around it and trees. I, I used to always draw those pictures in school. Sylvia ended up having three daughters, Penny, Tisha, and Kimberly. She was 17 when she had Penny, her oldest. Here's Penny. She was very, I would say, into into our lives, meaning um, she was, you know, that, that mom that was into, you know, the Girl Scouts, the PTA meetings. Um, she was always, um, you know, into the family functions and, you know, everything with us. Sylvia tried her best to be a good mom and wife, but the damage from her past experiences inevitably disrupted her personal life. I've been married four times already, but I could never maintain, like, like keep um, a marriage going. As the distractions from her trauma became increasingly destructive, Sylvia eventually started abusing hard drugs, like crack. Do you remember any of her drug use? Yes, yes. I remember she she tried to keep it undercover, but as me being the oldest of three girls, I I noticed a lot that was going on with her. For example, Penny says she remembers late nights out and a lot of trips in and out of the house. She would be late for jobs. I mean, she would work jobs, but she would be late. Or sometimes she would be tired, and so we would have to fend for ourselves. Um, and when I say fend for ourselves, get up and get ready for school, I, I will be responsible, making sure that we got up for school or making sure everything was handled in the household. It, it was a lot because I felt like it was unfair to me and... I would say at that age, I had a a lot of goals for myself. Um, A lot of things I wanted to do out of life. I I wanted to go places and do things and be on my own and, and be able to live my life. But instead, Penny would wind up permanently taking care of her siblings. By 1992, Sylvia was suffering from a serious addiction to crack. And to finance her own addiction, she was selling it for a network of street-level drug dealers. Sylvia says she sold crack to 43-year-old Bernetta Pope on a few occasions. But she also felt sorry for Bernetta. She describes the house Bernetta was staying in. No furniture, no running water, the bathroom didn't work, no TV. A few old chairs, like really nasty. I had brought her a sweatsuit to put on. Um, I took food there and gave them food. And I had had just recently met them, and they were very kind to me. In 
In May of 1992, Sylvia was waiting on $70 from Bernetta. And men from the network, including one of the bosses, Joseph, demanded she get the money. I didn't know how the whole operation was working. I only knew that he would tell me to take stuff to her and that I would go back to pick up the money. So she went to the place where she knew Bernetta was staying. I went around there to collect money for him. She said that she didn't have the money and she wasn't paying him, so I told him. So the next day, he told me to go back. On May 15th, Sylvia smoked some crack, drank some booze, and returned to the house. This time, she brought 17-year-old Lamont Antoine Blagman and 19-year-old Aaron Major. These two were also part of the dealing network, and Sylvia wanted to prove that she had actually been trying to collect the money she owed them all along. She also thought their male presence would persuade Bernetta into paying. They all went in the same car together, Sylvia driving. They found Bernetta at the house with a man and her 26-year-old son, Albert. I went in the house first to ask her for the money. She said she wasn't going to pay the money and whatever. So I went back out and I told Aaron and Antoine that she's what she said. Aaron and Antoine went in and they, I don't really know exactly what happened, but I guess they all start, everybody started arguing and all I heard was a couple of gunshots. I froze. I was scared. And I was like, what happened? So they ran, they left me. I drove, and when I went around the block, I seen them, then they got back in the car with me. Even after what had just happened, Antoine and Aaron still demanded their money. So I went to a ATM machine, and I took the money out of my bank account, and I paid them. Sylvia says she dropped them off and went home. She had no idea the gunshots she heard were bullets coming at the neck and leg of Bernetta Pope. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and to making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where we work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG pro bono program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. By the time Sylvia got home, police were already waiting for her. They asked her where she had been and what she knew about a shooting. Sylvia was terrified. She denied knowing anything, and she denied knowing Antoine and Aaron. But the police had received word that Sylvia was at the house, and it wasn't just a shooting. Bernetta Pope was now dead. Her son Albert had called 911 and told the police where Sylvia lived. So police knew that Sylvia was lying and that she wasn't going to cooperate. Just two hours after the incident, Sylvia was arrested for robbery, reckless endangerment, and assault. When they got to the police station, Detective Dennis Dusak questioned Sylvia about everything that transpired that night. Um, when he arrested me, 
he handcuffed me to a chair for hours and he kept asking me what happened and I told him I didn't really know what happened and I was talking to him and I was scared and I didn't know you know what to say or what to do and he wouldn't let me go to the bathroom he let me urinate on myself then she says Detective Dusak wrote out a statement for her to sign I kept telling him I had three children at home and he kept saying well um, if you sign this I'll let you go home and so I was like but this is not what happened so he kept me to the chair and then um, I kept falling asleep and he hit me with a phone book this thick thick um a paperback phone book to wake me up. He's like, sign this and we will let you go. I signed the paper and I never left prison. After that interaction, Sylvia ended up being charged with first-degree murder on top of robbery, conspiracy, and possession of instruments of a crime. Antoine and Aaron were also charged with murder, robbery, and a host of other crimes. The three of them went to trial on March 23, 1994, and were all tried together. The prosecutor was John Doyle. His argument was that Sylvia ordered Antoine and Aaron to kill both Bernetta and her son Albert, and Doyle developed this theory from Albert, who said that even though she was unarmed, Sylvia ordered the hit on their lives. In fact, because it was agreed that Sylvia was unarmed, Albert's statements were the main reason prosecutors could even charge Sylvia with murder in the first place. Prosecutor Doyle also presented Sylvia's signed statement, as well as one from Aaron Major. There's no evidence that Antoine Blagman signed a statement. But the defense counsel said that the two statements that were presented were coerced. In fact, on the stand, both Antoine and Aaron said that Sylvia did not have a gun and did not order anyone to shoot. All three also contended that Albert actually threatened them with a gun first. Forensics show that Bernetta was shot by two different guns. Although accounts vary, the defense and prosecution agreed on one thing. Sylvia did not have a gun and did not shoot anyone. What was that like to see your mom in cuffs and and facing a murder trial? I mean, that's, I imagine, is really traumatizing. Yes, it was. Um, You know, not being able to touch her or talk to her and seeing them question her. And for me, most, because my grandmother was there, And at the time, my grandmother was starting to go through dementia. So it was very hard. Um, I think that was the most for me, watching my grandmother go through it. Because my grandmother would just burst out in court, just stand up and scream and be like, you don't know what you're doing or you don't know what you're talking about. And just let my daughter go and... And the things that you're saying, she didn't do that. So, yes, it was very tough. On April 1st, 1994, Sylvia, along with Antoine and Aaron, was convicted of first-degree murder. 16-year-old Penny was now in charge of taking care of her younger siblings. And it was hard. I would tell friends, like, for school, jobs, when they would ask about my mother, 
I would say that my mother still lives in Virginia. So people that did not know that my mother was incarcerated. And I'm going to be honest, it was that love-hate relationship. Penny says it's been difficult to visit her mom in prison over the years. So to be honest, um, as a kid, we did go a lot. It was a, a group that went up. And they took the children all the time. But as I got older, I stopped going because I didn't like it at all. Um, I didn't like the way it felt to me. I didn't like seeing my mother like that. So I really, I really didn't. I stopped going a lot. But now that she's an adult with children, Penny wants her kids to have a relationship with their grandma. So they visit her. It's the only way for her to have a relationship with them since the fact, you know, she is a lifer. And unfortunately, (laughs) we grew up and we had kids of our own. And that's the only way she would have a bond with them and see them. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in in a different aspect of my life now. So... 
How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Meanwhile, Sylvia filed appeal after appeal to no avail. Neither of her two attorneys were effective. Sylvia's trial attorney, Michael Wallace, failed to file her appeal in a timely manner, so he was unable to appeal to the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. Eventually, her rights to appeal were reinstated, and she got a new attorney, James Bruno. But the appeals that Bruno filed were all denied and exhausted, leaving Sylvia very few options for release. And Bruno had issues of his own. He was later suspended from practicing law for violating rules of professional conduct. Meanwhile, Antoine Blagman was released from prison on his direct appeal in 1997. One of the tragedies in this particular case is that she never had adequate legal representation. This is Dr. Jill McCorkle. I'm a professor of sociology and criminology at Villanova University, and I'm also the founder and the executive director of the Philadelphia Justice Project for Women and Girls. Dr. McCorkle studies how mass incarceration intersects with gender and poverty. She was looking into another similar case, a woman who was not the shooter in a crime and also got a life sentence, when she came across Sylvia's case. There are a number of women uh, with similar kinds of scenarios where it's a, the, the principal offender is a man. She says women are often at a unique disadvantage in this situation. They're unable to cooperate with police because usually they're scared of retaliatory violence. And, um, and then, you know, police and prosecutors engage in a malicious prosecution. And so that's really how I got to Sylvia. Dr. McCorkle believes that Sylvia would have and should have been treated as a witness and that it was Sylvia's hesitancy to cooperate with police that got her the murder charge. Remember, when the police asked Sylvia what she knew about the crime and if she knew Antoine and Aaron, she said no. I was scared and I was like, what if they go do something to my girls? If I go tell on him, what happened? I, I was scared. Like, I got three girls at home that's alone. And I was afraid that if I told on them, like, if something might happen to my daughters. Dr. McCorkle says that a lot of women like Sylvia, who are vulnerable because of poverty, precarious lifestyles, drug and alcohol abuse, and or domestic violence, are not in a position where they can cooperate with police and prosecutors. It puts them at risk. It often puts family members at risk. And police and prosecutors, I'll say, I'll, I'll be as, as generous as possible, misinterpret that hesitancy. And I, I think in some cases, uh, honestly take that uh, unwillingness to cooperate as an indicator of criminal culpability and then hit them with elevated charges to try to force their hand. And so, you, you know, you can really look at these cases and see women sort of situated between street violence and then what I refer to as state violence. So that they're sort of uh, taking their chances either way. And those who are particularly vulnerable to, to violence and retaliation are saying, all right, well, I, you know, I'm going to take my chances at trial because it's better than taking my chances on the street. Sylvia took those chances, and they didn't land in her favor. Albert's contention that Sylvia ordered the hit 
ended up being her downfall. And Dr. McCorkle believes that Albert testified to this because of pressure he faced at the time. He had an open drug charge, and after he offered up this information, he was able to plead a very favorable and short sentence to his own case, even though he never initially said that Sylvia ordered the shooting. But Dr. McCorkle believes that Albert's testimony about Sylvia during the trial is actually one of the most preposterous things about Sylvia's case. When Sylvia is initially arrested, she's arrested for uh, robbery, um, maybe simple assault or aggravated assault, nothing about murder. So even when the police pick her up, there's no, you know, kind of framing of Sylvia as somehow this, you know, criminal mastermind or, or street heavy ordering the execution of the people in this house. Um, now, Albert testifies to that, and I, I think probably does so because that's the only way that prosecutors can, can hook Sylvia on in any meaningful way. They need some kind of statement. Um, you know, going directly to her culpability. Dr. McCorkle has studied crack cocaine markets in depth. She says knowing their structure is key to understanding the forces that led to Sylvia's conviction. These markets are organized hierarchically and by gender. You know, Sylvia's in her 30s at the time this goes down. And so one of the things that prosecutors are doing at trial is saying, here's this woman in her 30s, and she's got these two, you know, teenagers. So she's the adult. So therefore, you know, she must have been in charge of this. But that's not how crack cocaine markets work. These markets, and, and particularly the responsibility for retaliation and the responsibility for collecting debt, is men's responsibility. So, you know, sort of gender segregation in the drug market. So, you know, women aren't the enforcers in these markets. That's men. Even though Antoine Blagman was eventually released from prison, Dr. McCorkle believes him to be the likeliest shooter in this case. The mythology on the street is, yeah, you give a teenager the gun because they're not going to get as lengthy a sentence as an adult would. Which is the other reason that it's entirely plausible to me that Blagman is the shooter. He's the juvenile. And so that's certainly not unusual. It was the norm to have a juvenile be the shooter. So I can see Major handing that gun to Blagman. Sylvia was left with a life without parole sentence. And now with her appeals exhausted... Where we're really left here is commutation. And I think she deserves commutation on her merits, you know, without even looking into the kind of specifics of, all right, well, how culpable was she in this particular case? But I think on her own merits, she deserves to have uh, a sentence commutation, which would release her from life in prison without possibility of parole. It would allow her to go home to her family. Sylvia has made the best of her time in prison, however. She's gotten, you know, multiple certifications and she's got three decades in. Certainly, certainly Sylvia has done everything that that we would expect someone to do over the duration of, of such a long period of time.
Sylvia goes to church for weekly services, Bible study, and prayer. She has continued to develop her computer skills, and she studies entrepreneurship. But she especially enjoys being a certified peer specialist. They train us to, like, sit down and uh, to listen to people, you know, so it's not like to tell them what to do, but just to be listening and caring and helping them to find their own answer. And it, it makes you feel good. Also, I try to help, like, a lot of the young people. Um, I try to guide them. I try to talk to them a lot about being here and going home and making a change in their life. Sylvia loves doing this, and this is what she wants to continue to do. Dr. McCorkle has also offered her a position with the Philadelphia Justice Project for Women and Girls. When she gets out, we're going to have her be our ambassador and, um, and do a lot of outreach to other incarcerated women. And, um, and certainly, you know, uh, there's, there's no better expert, both with respect to these kinds of prosecutions, as well as, uh, you know, an expert in, in what it means to be a woman, to be a mother, to be a grandmother, navigating decades in prison. I feel like after 31 years in here that I've came to know myself. I have so much that I want to give back. I want to be able to go out and to help young people. I want to be able to tell my story to help some young girl know that no matter what happened in her life, no matter if she was molested, no matter if somebody you know, led her down the wrong road to get on drugs or, or to drink, that she can change. Sylvia is now 64 and in declining health. Among her ailments is sciatic nerve damage, arthritis, and herniated discs, all of which cause her daily pain. It is costing Pennsylvania taxpayers so much to lock up a prison population that, you know, 25% of them are 50 and older, and it's just incredibly expensive. And so regardless of sort of where you're situated politically, there's a recognition that we have got to get aging people out of prison. While Sylvia knows she's not directly responsible for Brunetta's death, she still feels regret over what happened. And I'm just so, so, so sorry for everyone that I hurt and for the pain that I caused. I'm very sorry for that. I wish I could take it all back. I wish I could go back to that day and do things all different. I would just wish that I could just go back. In July 2021, Dr. McCorkle submitted a letter to the Pennsylvania Board of Pardons urging them to grant Sylvia commutation. Sylvia's case is up for review in October 2022. She needs a majority of a five-person panel to move to the next round of voting, where she will need all five votes to be free. 
If you'd like to show your support for Sylvia, go to freesylviaboykin.com to sign a petition calling for her commutation. Next time on Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling, Troy Burner. You know, I didn't have nothing to do with it, so, you know, and they're not going to be able to find nobody to say I had nothing to do with it. So, you know, I held on to that, you know, that belief um, where they say the truth sets you free. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Please support your local innocence organizations and go to the links in our bio to see how you can help. I'd like to thank our executive producers, Jason Flom and Kevin Wordis, as well as our senior producer, Annie Chelsea, researcher, Lila Robinson, story editor, Sonia Paul, with additional production by Jeff Clyburn and Connor Hall. The music in this production is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrongful Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both Instagram and Twitter at Maggie Freeling. Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.